we can't just kind of in a wooden way say, here's the past, you know. Uh, we are understanding that through various prisms and hopefully accurately, but can't comprehensively. Even the people that were going through it at the time, the people that saw Lincoln shot literally there in Ford's theater could not write in one sense a comprehensive history of what happened. Welcome to Acted Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. David George Moore, founder and president of Two Cities Ministries, discusses his recent book, Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians. Dylan Pommen, Acton's research fellow and executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, joins Moore to explore his vision of how a deeper appreciation of history can ground Christians in an age in which one too often faces a landslide of information with insufficient tools to sift through the mess of our present world. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Act in Line. My name is Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the journal Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. I'm joined today by David George Moore, founder and president of Two Cities Ministries in Austin, Texas, and author of the book Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians, uh, which is the topic of our discussion today. Mr. Moore, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the title of your book, Stuck in the Present, let's, let's just begin by unpacking that. Who or what is stuck in the present? How are they stuck? And why are they stuck? Well, a lot of people are stuck. I I should go back to say that, Dylan, when I first started teaching this, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, you get, uh, no pun intended, you get stuck on your own title. So my teaching notes, uh, the title page was Making Connections, Linking Responsibly to the Past was a subtitle. Uh, when the publisher accepted the book, they said, I love the book, um, but there's just one little thing I want you to do. Your title's not punchy enough. Now, I'd already gotten kind of attached to making connections, linking responsibly to the past. So I was kind of upstairs in the library, grousing a bit, came downstairs, and I had the word stuck in my mind as far as wanting to use it. I thought it was punchy and good and kind of emblematic of some things I'm going to describe, but I couldn't get any further. Came downstairs, saw my wife, told her about the conversation with the publisher, and she said effortlessly, she said, stuck in the present. How about that? (laughs) That's awesome. I'll share the royalties with you. Uh, So uh, stuck in the present is the title, and I'll come back to that in a minute, and then How History Frees and Forms Christians, as you said, is the subtitle. Stuck... um, the Pilgrim's Progress is one of my favorite books. And um, if you know that book, you know that at the very beginning, he gets stuck or stranded uh, in the Slough of Despond. 
and he finally gets out. It's pretty brutal to get out, but he gets out finally. Um, and I think when I think about where a lot of people are today, whether they're religious or not, they're trying to figure out the present moment by only understanding the present moment. So it's impossible because the reference point is not nearly big enough. Plus, we're just getting bombarded with what I call uh, the democratization of data, that we're just getting all kinds of things thrown at us. So it might be a serious war in the Ukraine juxtaposed with the latest outrage in Hollywood, and they're given equal time or sometimes even more time to the latter. And so we're just deluged with uh, their true things, but they're not equally important. So we're trying to figure out, most of us as Americans are trying to figure out in our very fractured and factionalized uh, life that we're living now, uh, how do we get through and how do we understand this present moment? Yet most people are looking at social media and cable news as the two big feeders to understand it and not reading history. And so that's the stuck in the present. And I am writing specifically to Christians. So I wouldn't say that this is just applicable to Christians. It would be applicable to anyone that's interested, but I want Christians to understand that though the Bible is the primary book, it's the only book that I believe is the ultimate absolute binding authority inspired by God even the Bible itself says that there are other lines of, of knowledge and revelation that are important to know, like Proverbs says, consider the ant. So you have to go out into nature to watch an ant. Psalm 111 says, understand the history of redemption to understand what's going on. That's a, a big hat tip to history. So I'm really trying to encourage and motivate Christians to see that the only way they can understand the present moment is by having a wider lens and more reference points from the past. So that's the, the issue. It is a big problem. Uh, I think that's maybe, maybe one of the questions you asked. I think it's a gargantuan problem. And I don't find, frankly, uh, Christians doing much better on this than, than non-religious people. I think there's a, a deep anti-intellectualism. I think there's a deep tribalism. I think it's, I was interviewed recently down in Houston and the person interviewing me said, well, you must find it in what you're doing because you have more of an educational uh, ministry you're doing. You must find it easier to motivate Christians to learn now because there's so much upheaval in our culture. And that kind of makes sense. Sadly, it's not the case because I find that the more upheaval there is, the more people are prone just to go to their own little silos and echo chambers and safely stay kind of ensconced in their own little worlds of their own making. So I'm really trying to motivate uh, Christians specifically, but all people to see the importance of history to really understand and be wise. Now, is there any particular uh Christian tradition you have in mind? I know you mentioned more than once in the book that you were pastor at an evangelical church. Are you thinking specifically evangelicals or just more broadly, any any Christian who's interested? Really more broadly, my my background, I grew up in a Roman Catholic church. Um, uh, later on, started attending Protestant churches. Um, I've written for publications that like uh, Touchstone that 
have writers from all the three traditions, Orthodox, um, uh, Protestant, and Catholic writing for them. So, yeah, I'm writing to broadly to all Christians who care about engaging the culture as Jesus talked about and modeled. Um, my biggest audience that I you know, teach to and speak to would be broadly Protestant evangelicals, but that's not an exclusive audience. I've spoken recently to Roman Catholics and others, and so I'm, I'm anyone that'll listen, I'm trying to get them to see the practicality and the penetrating help that comes from history. All right. So having established who is stuck and how they're stuck, how do people get unstuck? Uh, you know, what does that look like? And what are you hoping people will change about themselves after reading this book? Well, there's a lot of ways I could answer that. Um, you know, it's interesting. That's um, a really formidable question in a lot of ways, because it gets with really the fundamental nature of how do people change in significant ways. So when you look at someone who has uh, been addicted to drugs, someone who loses 100 pounds of weight, someone who has been reading frivolous stuff all their life, and all of a sudden they go, you know, I want to read more robust, serious things. And I, I have a couple friends like that that have done that. It's you know, we put those people like if we're in church, we put them a lot of times in front because they're so unusual and so motivating and so captivating, but they're not the norm. That kind of significant change becoming unstuck, if you will, whether again, it's, uh, you know, a food addiction or whatever it is, um, is amazing. Like, what is it that moves a person? As a Christian, I believe certainly God is involved in that process, but I also believe that God honors uh, our desires and our inclinations and our willingness to take steps of faith. So I would say what it looks like is, um, you know, Tim Keller's uh, the pastor in New York City that's pretty well known in uh, various circles, a Presbyterian pastor. He's asked pretty regularly, well, why do you read so much? I mean, here you are a pastor, you're reading sociology, you're reading philosophy, you're reading history. Yes, you read your Bible commentaries and your theology books, but you read widely and deeply. Why are you reading so much? And Keller's answer, he says, it's always so easy to tell people. He says, because I'm desperate. I think a lot of Christians, let's just focus on that for a minute, uh, on them for a minute. I don't think we're in touch with how desperate we are. And the more you engage, and this is, again, what causes people to start to engage, that's, you know, maybe somewhat mysterious, but a person who says, you know what, I'm a Christian, I should be wanting to engage thoughtfully the culture, whether it's abortion, understanding the Constitution better, whatever the issue is, how scripture came together, the canon of scripture, the history of the councils, all that kind of stuff. And it's usually a felt need that grows when you engage more because then you're asked questions. And this was certainly my experience, the experience of a lot of my friends, that when I engaged early on as a Christian, I was encouraged to do that. I found out how much I didn't know. And early on, and I thought, you know what? I've got one of two choices. I can either expand my opportunities to engage people thoughtfully and expand ministry opportunities. Um, and the only way I can do that is by having better answers. So I need to study more to be more motivated to go back out, or I can stop 
engaging and just kind of go safely into my own little hovel and live there, which was a very unattractive uh, prospect for me. So I think those of us who are trying to motivate others to say, engage more with history, need to uh, encourage environments where people have that felt need to, I, I think this is a good example, like because of all that's happened with Roe versus Wade, a lot of people weren't aware that, you know, how the 14th Amendment was used uh, by black men, you know, in that whole decision. And all of a sudden, because of what's gone on, maybe some people go, that seems kind of crazy. And they, they look at the 14th Amendment and they go, gosh, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought this was a fallacious argument. And they start to make connections and start to realize, wow, you know, I'm seeing things and this is kind of motivating me and it's given me some more clarity in what I believe, but it's also going to help me hopefully have a, a, a more robust conversation with neighbors and others on it. So I think there's that there's a dynamic uh, of, you know, a desire that is many times fueled by context that shows, gosh, I am really desperate. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this just kind of in closing off a question, but come back at me if you want to follow up more on it. But I've often thought in my carnal imagination, if I could have the power to wave a wand over churches and that wand forces people to have to do something. So for example, by waving the wand uh, one week, everyone in that congregation has to talk to one of their neighbors about some really controversial issue. Um, and what would that week look like that would be different than previous weeks as far as, you know, pick the controversial issue, immigration on the list goes what would that week of study and thought and reflection look like? You know, another week I'd wave the wand and the person is forced to give a 10 minute sermon uh, up front in front of everybody. You know, what would that week look like in their engagement with Bible and theology that week? I dare say it'd be a lot different for a lot of people than the previous weeks. So I think getting people to see their, their real need, you know, that, that, making that real need felt in this kind of more palpable sense of, of desperation. Most people are not desperate, bottom line. So you said uh, you were encouraged to engage with history. Uh, encouraged by whom? I presume they weren't someone with a magic wand, uh, but perhaps some mentors in your life. Is there anyone in particular uh, whose influence really stands out to you? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, one that I mentioned in the book, you know, in the dedication, uh, Kurt Richardson and, and his wife, frankly, Susie as well, when they got married. But Kurt early on discipled me at Arizona State where I went to college. Uh, he was an excellent student um, in college, working with Campus Crusade for Christ. And he modeled uh, a really robust life of engagement with the mind along with uh, interacting in, in very, you know, evangelism, discipleship, all kinds of ministry there. Uh, so he was a huge influence. Another friend in college who ended up becoming a theology professor was a big influence. And I'd say probably in college, those were the biggest influences. And then when I went off to seminary, there were various 
professors. John Hanna at Dallas Seminary was a huge influence uh, at Trinity Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, biggest influences for sure were John Woodbridge and, and Tom Nettles uh, in that regard. Uh, my wife is also uh, a huge influence. She's a history major. She also did a history theology degree at Trinity. Um, ongoing conversations with our sons. Uh, it just kind of snowballed, you know, it's kind of that flywheel illustration that I, uh, you know, I think Jim Collins and others use that at first it's hard to turn and then just gets turning faster and faster and kind of just kind of starts going on its own. So yeah, various influences along the way. And then I, the nature of what I do, as maybe you saw, I've interviewed about 300 different scholars and writers over the years and spent time with uh, a number of them personally. Uh, did a PBS special with William F. Buckley years ago. Uh, spent a fair amount of time with him. Um, and so you, you have those people too. I, I have uh, a group of uh, very responsive top flight historians that when I fire them a question, uh, they're very quick to respond. Uh, Gerald McDermott, Doug Sweeney, George Marsden, and others who have been just wonderful to, I try not to bother them too much, but in their area of specialty, like Doug, I recently asked a question of Gerald as well. Uh, Dr. Nettles, I asked a question of. Um, and so those are really big help. So yeah, I, I've been blessed to have a lot of uh, influential folks that uh, have really aided me along the way. You mentioned Buckley there. Now the the tagline or motto of uh, National Review uh, is that a conservative is someone who stands athwart history, yelling "Stop!" when no one else will. Uh, right. Perhaps along those lines, uh, or somewhat in that vein, um, Lord Acton, for whom the Acton Institute uh, is founded, uh, was a Roman Catholic historian, and uh, he once said that history is not a master but a teacher. It is full of evil. Um, how can Christians approach history in a way that doesn't romanticize, idealize, or idolize their favorite periods and people? You know, I'll, I'll invoke another name to illustrate uh, what I'd like to illustrate with your question. Tracy McKenzie, who teaches at Wheaton College, has never been a favorite of mine. Uh, Tracy just wrote a terrific book, We the Fallen People. I don't know if you guys have interviewed him on that. If you haven't, there's a suggestion, highly recommended. In fact, I, I joke with Tracy that um, I would like to make it, if I could wave my wand over American, and this is over all the whole, the whole United States and say, in order to vote, you have to thoughtfully read Tracy's book, We the Fallen People. And then you get to vote once you kind of tell us how you've digested the book. So, um, you know, there's, Tracy talks a lot about, and, and he wrote uh, another couple books that are really helpful in this regard that I've interviewed them all three. Um, but one of the other ones, the first Thanksgiving, which is really a good popular historiography of what we know about the first Thanksgiving, how we've misunderstood it. And Tracy regularly talks about the irresponsible way of engaging history is not understanding the truth the strangeness of the past, not going back to take the past on its own merits. And uh, rather you kind of go, oh, I'm going to ransack it for kind of some quotes and some things that fit my own predispositions and convictions. And um, 
you know, I, I think there's a number even in the Christian world that do that. Um, and that's not a responsible way to do history. History of any learning, in fact, I would say in a broader sense, and, and history certainly fits this, is an open-handed, you know, you're, you're engaged, you're discerning, but it's an open-handed engagement of saying, okay, I'm going in and I realize that to learn, I'm probably going to have to unlearn some things. Uh, one of the guys that had a big impact on me said that all good Christian discipleship really means undoing some bad discipleship. You know, the ancient Greeks said mathane, pathane, to learn is to suffer. Uh, developmental psychologists say that uh, disequilibrium is a dynamic of maturity. You got to go through these processes of going, whoa, I, I, you know, almost a vertigo kind of thing, like, whoa, I had no idea there was this kind of travesty being done by these kind of Christians or these kind of people that were kind of, that I would identify as part of my tribe type thing. Uh, one thought experiment I've given to people like in Sunday school classes and elsewhere who are decidedly on the conservative side said, okay, pick like who you think is a great hero or heroine of the 20th century. And, you know, people pick, typically pick, you know, Reagan, Thatcher, Churchill, Pope John Paul II. And then I say, well, why, why are you impressed with them? And they can quickly delineate all the reasons why they're impressed with them. Say, so, well, really, I'm, I'm glad you did that, but that's not really what's germane to this thought experiment. What's germane to it is what I'd like to know is what do you see as some of those people's weaknesses? Where do they screw up? Where do they mess up? And if they have a hard time, you know, if there's kind of like a mental lockjaw of sorts, so it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't have, I don't have anything. They were great. They were awesome. You know, <laughs> um, and I think that the responsible way again of engaging any subject, I mean, in history, you know, if you're learning to fly a plane, if you're learning how to bake well, any skill, you're learning how to landscape a yard well, and you're around someone and you're aware you're around someone who's a real expert because of what they do and you've seen their work and stuff, you, in a sense, submit yourself to them. Now, not in an undiscerning way, but you can ask questions and go, isn't there, I, I would think this would be a more efficient way to do that. And then you hear, no, it's really not. It seems like it. And so history, I think any learning is like that, where there's an open-handed willingness to submit and to say, you know, I really could be wrong about something, which I, by the way, I think is um, one of the biggest, along with not the desperation, but I think one of the biggest impediments to learning, and this is certainly true of history, is what John Hall, the British educator said in one of his books, and he wrote a whole chapter on it, is that I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be proven wrong. In his essay on the use and abuse of history, Friedrich Nietzsche argued that there are limits to various approaches to history and that furthermore, over-focusing on history can lead to a neglect of the unhistorical and the superhistorical. To what extent might he be right? In particular, he identified the former with what he called the power to forget and the latter with art and religion. Granting the importance of history, to what extent should a Christian's faith transcend history? When, if ever, should one exercise the power to forget? 
That's a, a good and important question. I think of um, the famous classicist who recently died at Yale, Donald Kagan. I think he offers a help on this. And I did an interview with Wilford McClay, who I imagine maybe has even spoken at Acton before. Maybe, maybe Kagan has as well. But um, Kagan talked about understanding that doing history, there's a philosophical sense to it that being a chronicler, you know, if you were sitting down, let's say we don't have this obviously, but if you were sitting down, say like at some meeting and you were capturing every kind of second or minute what's being said, and then you handed someone and go, you know, and had all these pages of a two hour meeting or something said, here's your history of the meeting. You know, it's like, no, it's just, it, it's an accurate description, but there's a sense in which you have to privilege certain things. Certain things were said with more emphasis, even there, maybe they had less time. You'd have to know some backstory. There's a sense, and this is Kagan's point, where there's a sense in which history invites the philosophical or the selection, that just to be a chronicler is not to be a historian in the best sense. Um, when I interviewed Wilford McClay on Land of Hope, his terrific uh, survey of American history, I asked him about what he thought about Kagan's idea, and he agreed with it very much. So I think the forgetfulness, I mean, I, I think we want to be honest. We want to be comprehensive. So, for example, I think it is, to, to give a specific example, if you're writing a history of the United States or you're teaching a class, a survey of American history, and you bypass, you kind of maybe say very little about Native American abuses and stuff, and you move on to kind of more kind of some of the positive, glorious things about the American experiment, or you short shrift say, um, some of the Puritan excesses, and I'm a big fan of, of Puritan devotional literature and other things, but you short shrift that, I think, again, that's problematic. I think in the same way, you can overemphasize things. And so I think if I'm understanding kind of the nub of that, I, I think there's history is not we can't just kind of in a wooden way say, here's the past, you know, uh, we are understanding that through various prisms and hopefully accurately, but can't comprehensively, even the people that were going through it at the time, the people that saw Lincoln shot literally there in Ford's theater could not write in one sense, a comprehensive history of what happened. Um, so I think there is a lopping off, uh, uh, you call it a forgetting, but there is a selection. I would want to use the word. There is a selective side. Hopefully it's done responsibly. I think there are correct. I think there's, um, helpful ways to make sure your selection is accurate. I think reading a wide variety of sources, primary sources first, for sure, but then reading, really good peer-reviewed secondary sources that maybe disagree with each other a little bit and seeing in a Venn diagram where that shaded area 
of reality is. It's kind of the same thing that I'll, I'll close with this. When we had cable TV, um, the bigger package wasn't always easy and I didn't always enjoy, I didn't, hardly ever enjoyed it, but I watched all three cable stations and I, in my mind, I'm saying to myself, okay, where is the shared meaning? And if I saw a story and everyone kind of admitted that this part of it actually happened, then I kind of go, well, that that's really solid ground. I've got something there that to work with that that would be a good thing if I was doing a history of that moment that everyone kind of agrees on. So I, I think, you know, Nietzsche had, I haven't read a lot of Nietzsche. I've interviewed some Nietzsche scholars and uh, Bruce Benson's terrific book, Pious Nietzsche is wonderful. Uh, shout out on that. Um, I, I think he, like Emerson, who's one of my big conversation partners, I think people like Emerson and Nietzsche, uh, though a lot of Christians love to hate them, they raise, I think, really salient questions that we need to wrestle with. All right, one last uh, quote that I want to have you engage with a little bit here. Um, so the, the starting point of the Christian faith, wrote the Orthodox priest and church historian, Father George Ferosky, is the acknowledgement of certain historical events in which God has acted sovereignly and decisively for man's salvation precisely in these last days. How has Christianity contributed to our modern conceptions of history? Modern conceptions of history, I think that, um, you mean by modern, do you mean like- Oh, as opposed to popular, ancient. Popular sense? I or, mean, you, or, can, you can take in a variety of directions, but uh, as opposed to say like a pagan, ancient, you know, Herodotus versus Eusebius, oh, gotcha. something okay, like that. Gotcha. Okay, so Robert Royal, the Roman Catholic uh, writer who I just think his stuff is terrific, um, um, the God who did not fail is the book I'm thinking about, uh, read some of his other stuff, but talks about, and Scott Hahn, another Roman Catholic, uh, biblical scholar talk about this, just how radical the idea of linearity in time is the idea of progression, the idea of an eschaton, a telos, as the ancient Greeks would say, a so what, a culmination, that things are moving. It's not cyclical. Um, and, you know, we're just so used to that. We're so used to kind of a sense of succession. Uh, it's the way we think. That's the way we've been raised in the West. And we just think anything else was like, well, that's just insane. But yet the Judeo-Christian uh, contribution there is massive, indispensable. Um, and, you know, you see it all the way, and Royal does this, going all the way back to the prophets and how that unfolds in their own understanding as far as the coming Messiah and uh, events after that, and then the ultimate uh, wrapping up the eschaton, the end of of time as we know it here, but not the end of time and in an uh, in, in ultimate sense. That gets into the whole nature of heaven is it timeless and I won't go there. Uh, <laughs> it's not my area of expertise, but I do have some conversations I've had with people. I think there's some real misunderstandings about the new heavens, new earth, and the whole idea of timelessness. I think the Bible, I'll just say this, Bible shows um, a sense of unfolding uh, present participles throughout scripture that give a sense of succession continues. We tend to think, oh, because now we're living in a fallen world that's problematic and we're bound by time, 
time is necessarily going to be something that's going to be sloughed off. I'm, I, I don't think the evidence necessarily shows that, even biblically. Um, like even in Revelation, it talks about the tree is for the healing of the nation, present participle. It seems to be a, a growing sense of how much that heals and brings redemption. Anyway, um, so that's huge. I, I think the Christian contribution there is is very, very big. And um, we take it for granted. You know, Tom Holland's the classicist that, you know, wrote the blockbuster Dominion has said that he realized that he is a beneficiary of a Christian worldview, even though he's kind of always thought like he was more of a Greco-Roman kind of guy. And more he thought about it, he thought, no, I find them horrible on so many levels and find the deposit that's been given by um, the Judeo-Christian worldview is like, that's what I believe in, free speech and on it goes. So that whole idea of linearity in time is big. And again, I think it's one of those things that we take for granted, but it's, it's, um, it's very significant. And, you know, throughout scripture, obviously, and, and understanding of the best thinkers in the Christian tradition. All right. So given their faith in the supernatural, um, how can engaging with history help prepare Christians to expect the unexpected? You talk about this a bit in your book. Um, what, what is the relationship between history and hope? The unexpected is that if you've studied history, here's a good example. Um, I find a lot of Christians committing this error. Look how bad America's gotten. And we are at clearly an inflection point. I think it's clear that the plates underneath us, we're going through a lot of earthquakes culturally, religiously, um, that's undeniable. But some Christians, because they don't know the past, go, well, we're just going to get worse and worse and worse. They assume that they can know the future, okay? Now, if someone were living in 19th century America prior to this obscure man that now we know is Jeremiah Lamphere, a business guy, is concerned about America and where America's going. And he just starts praying on his own. And then some people ask him what he's doing. He tells them he's praying, you know, for America. And some people join him. And if you know that history, the business awakening, eventually like a million people, uh, you know, start praying, mass conversions. Uh, there was even a very famous journalist who I think traveled from Kansas to New York City who was skeptical about what he's hearing about and went to all these different towns and found that incredible stuff happened, you know, and, and he, it was undeniable. Um, you look at what happened in the Wesleyan revivals, you look at the first great awakening in America. So a Christian, it, it's like miracles. I mean, we shouldn't just say, Oh, God's going to bring an awakening and correct everything and everything's going to be great. That would be silly and foolish again, acting like we know the future, but it's also silly and foolish and misguided to say it's undeniably going to get worse. So a Christian who has a historic sense goes, well, wait a second. You know, it's the old Chesterton quote, you know, at different times, it seems like the church five different times. It seems like the church went to the dogs only to have the dog die, you know, and, and he had a historic sense. He knew that, wait a second, if, if, if you're hopeless, and this kind of, again, fits in with the hope side of the question, if you're hopeless, like, oh, we're clearly going to hell as, as a culture. You know, America's never been here before. We've never had transgender issues. That's true. We've never had 
access to media like we do. That's true too. We've never had such tribalism. It's true. We've never had such factions, such fracturing, such disagreements about what makes an American American or even a Christian a Christian. All that is true. But to then say that equals we're therefore going on this path and I know exactly what the next 20 years are going to look like. It's like, wait a second, you just said something that is only the prerogative of God. You don't know. And if you had a more of a historic sense, you go, wait a second, I shouldn't think that way. You know, historians and psychologists, and Tracy uses this word in one of his books, um, metacognition, it's, you know, evaluating why do I think the way I think. A person has a historic sense goes, wait a second, that's not a good way to think. My hope is really screwed up. Your book has two appendices. Um, and one is interviews with uh, Tracy McKenzie, who you just mentioned, and you've mentioned a, a few times, uh, Jamar Tisby, and then James McPherson. Uh, but the second one is actually what I want to focus on. So uh, your second appendix, appendix takes aim at some concerns you have with the inductive method of Bible study. Where do you see this method becoming dangerous, and um, how do your concerns relate to the importance of history for Christians? Great. I'm glad you asked that question. I think you're the first of all the interviews I've done that's asked a question about that appendice. So I appreciate that. That's a absolutely unique uh, question I'm being asked. So uh, one of the seminaries I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, teaches this method of, of inductive uh, method, uh, a Bible study. You observe the text carefully, then you kind of move to a responsible interpretation based on really paying attention to what's going on in the text and the context. And then you make an, a responsible application and you correlate it to other scriptures. It's not a bad method per se. It helps people be more aware, especially the observational part. But what's problematic about it is that it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it really kind of has this idea of the individual acting on an individual text, namely the Bible, whatever book it is, let's say the book of Colossians, and not knowing that, well, there's a need to understand maybe some of the debates in church history that, you know, came shortly after some of the things that even Paul's talking about in Colossians, and that they were retrieving certain texts in Colossians, say in the third or fourth century, to make a case for the divinity of Christ or, or whatever issue they were debating and discussing. Um, and the idea that we're kind of a blank slate and we don't come with any assumptions, uh, I think our ability to ask better questions to the biblical text is enhanced, not diminished by knowing history. And so the idea that I can just come as kind of this autonomous individual do a bunch of observations and then move seamlessly to interpretation application is owing to, you know, the scientific method, you know, Bacon and others, this induction method that you're kind of able to do it in this clean kind of beaker sort of way. And you don't have assumptions, presuppositions, and you're not in a positive way also seeing the importance of being informed by other things and, you know, other areas of knowledge to ask better questions of what am I observing? You have this view of like, I just need to look at this text. It's like, 
well, okay, that's great that you're wanting to look responsibly at Colossians, but I would say, you know, it may be helpful if you had some background in church history to kind of know throughout the ages to some degree how Colossians has been appreciated and and how it was really a seminal text and for a lot of people. That might be really helpful to have kind of in the back of your mind as you're looking at, you know, the book of Colossians. So I think the inductive method can give a false sense of confidence of how accurately we're reading scripture. Well, the book is stuck in the present. The author is David George Moore. Thank you for joining us on Act in Line. Thank you. My pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.